We are in Ezra chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I know at least Marcus has read ahead, so that is totally awesome. I'm going to give him some extra points today. All right. So if you haven't, you know, consider opening your, your, your Bible, your device, your graphic novel, your scroll, your clay tablet, what have you, whatever you brought, please open that Ezra chapter 3. Let's say a quick prayer. Father God, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And it is our privilege as your people to be able to enjoy that. I pray this morning that you will open our hearts to a deeper enjoyment of you through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, before we get into the quiz or get into the uh, to the text this morning, I have a quiz for you, okay? Now, if at least one person answers this correctly, we'll let you out a little bit earlier. At least I'll keep my sermon on the short set. All right, so, you ready? You guys awake? No pressure? No pressure? This should be a gimme, I hope, but... So, should, give me a hand raise and I'll call on you if you know the answer. What is... What is... Elders can't answer because you've already seen it. What is the chief and highest end of man? Hey, Mr. Garinger. To glorify God and enjoy it forever. Hey, all right, we're out early today. Okay. Thank you, David. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm honest with myself, I don't often consider that in the context of my day-to-day Christian walk. You know, I think of obedience. I wrestle with sin for sure. I pray for people who are struggling. I pray to stay awake during my next meeting at work, you know. But, you know, actively considering how to glorify God in any given situation is sadly not often part of my thought life. And yes, some of those things that I mentioned do, of course, glorify God. But I don't often come at them with the proactive mindset that I mentioned a few weeks ago to proactively think about how to glorify God in a given situation. And, you know, the same goes for enjoying God. You know, have you ever asked yourself, how do I go about enjoying God? Well, it starts with a heart attitude that delights in God. And that delight stems from appreciating who He is. And then who we are, apart from Christ, right? We're dead in our sins and trespasses, apart from Christ. And appreciating the great effort, you know, if you think about the Word of God, the great effort that He has made to love us into His kingdom. And it continues as we eagerly seek to know Him more. Knowing Him more often comes best as we study His Word, of course. And it's true, we can't ever know, ever fully know an infinite God. But it's remarkable how much we can learn about Him from Scripture. And it's remarkable how much trouble He has gone to in recording and preserving Scripture for us. Now, if we approach Scripture eagerly, looking to find what is revealed about God in any given passage... That is enjoying God. 
even potentially dull historical narratives, kind of like Ezra, take on a new light when we look at them in the light of enjoyment. Now, a third way to both glorify and enjoy God is through our worship of Him. And I hope you've felt some of that this morning. I hope you've been able to glorify and enjoy our God through our worship this morning, our singing, the singing part of worship, right? Because as we heard some weeks ago, our worship of Him happens across all aspects of our lives. And yet, there's a particular enjoyment of God when we gather in various ways with the saints to sing, to pray, to study the Word, and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, Jason mentioned last week that the theme of Ezra is God's covenant faithfulness. We've been singing about aspects of that this morning. And see, that is something for all of God's people to enjoy and to glorify Him for. For the people of Israel, of course, a huge part of how they glorified and enjoyed God was expressed in the sacrifices, in temple-centered worship, and festivals implemented under the Mosaic Covenant. For the faithful remnant of Israel, the restoration of temple worship was a huge deal. The return of that temple worship was probably the biggest reassurance of God's faithfulness those people would ever experience. So let's dive into Ezra chapter 3 and see what we can learn about glorifying and enjoying our God. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, Jason called him Joshua last week, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Hapa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward 
to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Amen. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish from the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. The passage begins with, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now remember that Jerusalem had been destroyed as part of the exile to Babylon. The city had no walls and wasn't fit for the returning Jews to live in. The people were living in various towns, trying to reestablish homes and farms and businesses. But don't miss the eagerness of the people in the author's simple statement. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, if you think about it, humans being humans, right? How often is it that the people who are busy reestablishing their lives in a new place, I mean, anybody has ever moved, right? It's kind of arduous. How often is it that people in that situation would all hit the pause button to go worship God? That in and of itself is pretty remarkable. And as part of this gathering, the priests rebuilt the altar and reinstituted the various sacrificial practices called for in the law. Now the text is a little confusing in that it sort of sounds like they did a whole bunch of stuff at once, right? But the Jewish religious practices had a rhythm to them. They had daily sacrifices, they had festivals for the different seasons, and so on, which were meant to keep the people focused on God, despite the comings and goings of their lives. That is what is being pointed out here, that from that point in time forward, the priests had reestablished that rhythm. Now let's not skip over this little interesting insight. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now while a large portion of the Jewish population had been part of the exile, okay, carted off to Babylon, there was a small portion of the poorest of the poor who had left, been left behind. And with no one to prevent them from doing so, some people from the surrounding countries would have migrated into Israel and taken over abandoned homes and farms and towns. 
you can imagine how over the course of the 70 plus years of the exile, these folks would have come to feel like they owned the place. And they certainly wouldn't have been thrilled to have the Jews show up and try to settle back into their old homes and farms and businesses and towns. So that was certainly reason enough for the exiles to fear the peoples of the lands and to want to seek God's favor by reinstituting the sacrifices. But it also points out something quite sad. See, the 70 years of exile hadn't really changed certain aspects of their hearts. Remember that it was fear of the surrounding nations that had led Israel and Judah into exile in the first place. See, they had trusted in just about everything else but God to protect themselves from attacks by the surrounding nations. Turning first to one nation and then another, all the while God's prophets warning them not to do that. Now at least they were showing at this point in time that they were eager to turn to God for protection, right? Well, maybe. But you would think that the surprising way that God had caused Cyrus to send them back to Jerusalem, in perfect alignment with Jeremiah's prophecies, would have given them confidence in his covenant faithfulness. Which means that their worship, as expressed through these sacrifices, was tainted. Because their primary motivation was fear and not glorifying and enjoying God. Now note that I said primary motivation. See, we all have fears and doubts. But we're to lay those down at the altar. We're not to try to bribe God into protecting us. And folks, before we look down our noses too far at these folks, how often do we do the same sort of thing? We puff ourselves up with pride at how we've stood up to fear over this one thing, right? We made the big journey from Babylon all the way down to Jerusalem. Woohoo! But we succumb to fear with something else. Oh, we made it to Jerusalem, but, but now we're scared of the natives. We're just like them, folks. Perhaps if we stay focused on God's covenant faithfulness through it all, we would not be swayed by pride or fear. Now, while the law of Moses called for quite a few different festivals, note how the author specifically called out the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths, that's sometimes known as the Feast of Tabernacles, was a harvest celebration, and it was a time to remember something. Anybody remember what? Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> uh, specifically, it was to remember God's faithfulness and provision as he delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land through 40 years in the wilderness. Hmm, interesting. So at least the exiles are making progress, right? They've returned to Israel. They've reinstituted sacrifices and festivals. But something was still missing. The text says, The foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now, if I'm looking to glorify God and enjoy God, and I don't want the guilt from any sins I've committed to be separating me from God, it'd certainly be nice if they were atoned for. Now, in Christ, Christ has done that work for us, right? But under the law of Moses, 
That atonement can't happen until a high priest makes the required offerings of blood, which can only happen under the Jewish law once per year on Yom Kippur. And it can only happen in the room known as the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is where? In the temple. And remember that the temple had been so thoroughly destroyed that even the big stone blocks that formed part of its structure had been moved. So they would have had to start from scratch, which required a tremendous effort just to get the foundation placed. We're talking hand tools and heavy, hard labor. So, show of hands, who's ever had to do, dig by hand either a foundation or a trench or something like that? Anyone? Okay, it's hard work, right guys? Now, consider a small like home and then think about something like the size of this complex to give you a sense of the scale of the temple. So this was a big building and it required a tremendous amount of organization and various trades to construct, not to mention the raw materials. So as we read in the text earlier, the priests essentially became contractors to oversee the work and God's faithfulness again shone forth as they were able to enlist the neighboring Sidonians and Tyrians to supply lumber for the construction. Now in our times, right, we have houses built on a grand scale, like you go to the northeast corner of town, right, and you have these huge complexes that get built. We don't often much think about that construction process, but that hasn't always been the case. See, to varying degrees in different times and cultures, constructing a building was a major deal, especially something as special as the temple. And different steps in the building process were marked with ceremonies and celebration. So after all this time has passed since the first temple was destroyed, all the delays, you can imagine the excitement in the people as the foundation was finally laid. Let's go back to the text for that part. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. For many of us in the Reformed camp, this description of a great outpouring of emotion may make us a little uncomfortable. We tend to take Jeremiah 17.9, which goes like this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
We tend to take that a bit too far sometimes and try to deny or subvert emotions we experience. And, you know, some of you guys are maybe like me. I don't often get overly worked up either one way or the other over things. I'm kind of one of those mellow personalities. But whether by nature or nurture we tend to be more mellow, it's a good thing to be excited about the things of God, folks. Amen? Thank you. Think about it in the context of this book, right? Despite the author's very matter-of-fact presentation of the history here, it seems clear that the Israelites were totally overcome with praise for God. They were glorifying Him and enjoying Him in ways not likely experienced in decades. Right? We get a little bit out of sorts when we miss church one or two weeks in a row, right? These guys had suffered this way for decades. And as we read last week, the author didn't record any show of emotion when they were given permission to return to Jerusalem. But he sure captured that emotion here in chapter 3, right? Now the shouting aloud for joy part is kind of obvious, right? They were ecstatic that the temple is finally being rebuilt and they can again worship God as he asked them to in the law. Now it's not that the faithful weren't worshiping God while in exile. See, if you go to Daniel chapter 6, we read how that he retreated to his home three times a day, got on his knees, and prayed toward Jerusalem. That's not quite the same as worshiping at the temple, but it was still acceptable worship, as was apparent from how God worked through Daniel. And I'm pretty sure that God's glorified when his people sing his praises, right? So these, these former exiles are enjoying this incredible moment with God. So that's the joy part. So why would some of these people be weeping? The author really doesn't elaborate, but you can perhaps extrapolate at least a few reasons about why that might be possible. Well, one reason might be that they were sorrowful that their sins had kept them from glorifying and enjoying God in this way for so long. Another reason might be that they were relieved that the prophecy was fulfilled and they could resume worshiping God in their normal ways. But what matters here is less the reasons for the weeping and more the depth of expression. I would suggest that even there was even if sorrow was behind the tears, God was still being glorified and would ultimately be enjoyed. Now why would I say that? Because a heart that is deeply moved by the things of God is one that has properly prioritized God. We get a sense of this from Revelation chapter 3, that famous verse in, starting in chapter 15. I know your works, you're neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, if we think about that sorrowful heart, I would think that heart, if that was indeed the reasons, would be a humble, repentant heart. God would lift up. 
And that sorrow would turn to joy. And God would be glorified through the grateful praises of that person. As David wrote in Psalm 30, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. In the heart of joy, glorifying God in David's psalm here. I've kind of saved the best part for last. And we need to spend some time considering the words of praise that they were singing. For he is good. Right? He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And again, remember the context. These people had returned from exile. They had endured the long walk from Babylon. They had endured the hostility of those who were currently living in the area. They'd endured while the construction of the temple was organized and the foundation stones were placed. If you talk to Mark, I bet you he could talk to you about how that goes sometimes in the building process. So they'd endured all of that. And yet, the focus was on the goodness and love of God toward them. At least at this particular moment, They weren't complaining about the past or worried about the future. They were just enjoying the love of their God and His covenant faithfulness toward them. His promises fulfilled. Now as Jason pointed out last week, it was that covenant faithfulness that gave them and gives us the courage to stand in the gap between the promise and the reality. But friends, there's more to standing in the gap with courage than just gritting your teeth and bearing up under the trials that come our way. You see, those trials are ultimately meant to bring glory to God as He works them for our good. And the more we see that now, the more we can enjoy Him now. See, that enjoyment isn't just for when we get to heaven. That's what we see in the great shout of the Israelites. They were enjoying him in that moment. And that small manifestation of his covenant faithfulness hardly compares with the expression of it we see and have in Christ. How much more should our expressions of joy be in the here and now, even as we still wait? For Christ's return. Now of course the reality is. That it is hard to enjoy him. In that gap. When trials seem to hit us. In wave after wave. When we can't find ready answers. To situations we find ourselves in. When even God's people. Seem to be bringers of pain. Instead of comfort. And you know it's okay. To have moments when we don't enjoy God. That's the whole point of this great shout of Israel. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. You see, it's a reminder to point us back to our source of joy 
our Heavenly Father, when we lose sight of it. You see, He is good. Not people. Not even His people. He alone is good. And His steadfast love endures forever. Not the love of your spouse, or your parents, or your best friend. See, these trials won't endure forever. But His steadfast love towards you endures forever. Friends, while we're in the gap, we must constantly remind ourselves and others of this truth. See, like the Israelites, the joy comes as we remember these past times of faithfulness. The joy comes as we take time to notice how God has been faithful in our past and to apply that to our current trials because His love endures forever. Friends, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to see all the steps along the path between here and heaven. We have all of Scripture. This whole thing is a reminder of God's faithfulness. And each of us have examples of His faithfulness for us to draw from. Let's recall them often and greatly praise Him for them. And let's do that now as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are amazed. We glorify you this morning that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for us. That you have shown your covenant faithfulness upon your people for lo these many thousand years. Day in, day out, your covenant faithfulness, your love endures forever. And even though our trials may seem like they stretch on for a long time, that's nothing compared to your love. So for whatever trials we're enduring right now, Lord, help us to focus on your past faithfulness to us and know that you're always faithful. Lord, we long to glorify you through how we live and we so look forward to enjoying you forever. And we look forward to enjoying you right now. Please help our hearts to do that, Holy Spirit, this morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.